Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, thank you, Sarah and Ransford, for leading us in our time of confession and praying for our city. Um, we truly appreciate that. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at the District Church. For those of you who don't know me, thank you for joining with us. Um, I'm excited to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Hopefully, quarantine and lockdown hasn't made you go too crazy, although if you've seen most of the men in this room, uh, it seems to make them have gone crazy. So um, we'll, we'll see what this next week brings in regards to hair, facial hair, people shaving. We'll see all of that. But um, this morning, before we jump in, I want to give a quick announcement. Um, for those of you who didn't know, uh, today is actually Palm Sunday. Uh, it's the day where we as a church symbolically walk with Jesus as he enters into Jerusalem. Um, and so what I want to encourage you guys to be able to do this week is to walk through what that looks like through scripture. Maybe take some time to pray and meditate fast on what uh, the Bible teaches us about Jesus' triumphal entry as well as what will eventually happen at the rest of the week with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, if you don't have a passage to read, you can go to Luke 19, uh, starting in verse 44. Or if you have our Lent guide that we've prepared, you can walk through that and it gives some passages to read each day. You can read through week six and week seven um, by God's uh, ordained irony, really, uh, we have actually set up this Lent guide to have fasting included, uh, and this week's included fast is buying non-essential items. So uh, God in his ordained providence um, has already set us up to, to not buy those non-essentials as we walk into this Lent week, um, so it's something we're already doing. But I would encourage you to continue to read and pray through that and walk through the devotions uh, as we go through Holy Week and celebrate Easter next week together. Um, we are going to be continuing in our book of Ecclesiastes, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be taking a look at the first 14 verses today and really what Solomon has to say about the character of a wise man. This is actually a turning point in our study through this book. Um, if you've noticed the last six chapters, we've been walking through what Solomon has learned in his study of life under the sun. And so we'll see a transition today into some proverbial wisdom that Solomon's gonna give us. Um, and we'll also see in this chapter some transitions into his wisdom in regards to God's sovereignty and what a wise man does and what a fool will do. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to that. Uh, again, chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 14. Before we jump in, I want to highlight two words that we'll see in this chapter that really bring together what Solomon is saying. Uh, we'll see the word good, and we'll see the word better than, or more good as it's translated in Hebrew. Uh, as I was saying this morning, the sermon title that I have is Mo Betta, as we would translate it today. So that's what Solomon is showing us. He is in his argument showing that this is good, but something else is better. And in his argument, he's showing us that wisdom is better than foolishness and righteousness is better than wickedness. And we see that good is that bridge between both of these chapters 
in 6 and 7 to compare us today. So Solomon's argument in this is the wise chooses what is good and the fool chooses what is opposite. And if you remember from last week as Dwayne preached through chapter 6, we learned that in life under the sun we will never truly be satisfied. This is what Solomon tells us. He even shows us that we are designed to not find satisfaction under the sun. And this theme runs throughout Ecclesiastes up until this chapter 6. And Solomon ends this chapter with this verse. It's found in verse 12. He says, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Solomon asks this question, and we'll see in today's chapter he answers this question. And the answer is simply this. How a man lives his life is under God's sovereignty. That is the answer to Solomon's question today. What is good for a man to live under the sovereign rule of God? It is his sovereignty that the firm foundation of life can be found in this fallen and corrupted world. Solomon shows us this truth through these Proverbs that we'll read today. As one pastor puts it, it's like an old grandfather sitting us down on a table, or sitting us down at a table with some coffee and saying, here's what I've learned about life. Listen up, and you can learn. So let me pray for us this morning, and we'll go ahead and see what Grandpa Solomon has to tell us. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we thank you that you, in your wisdom, have designed things to be for the good of your people. Lord, we pray this morning as we open up your word and we see how the wise man lives, that it would challenge us, that you would point out areas in our life that we need to bring before you. And Lord, I pray that we, in these words, would grow more in the likeness of Christ. Thank you for this grace and this mercy that you've shown us through Christ. Help us to remember what Palm Sunday means for us in we are laying down those palms and praising Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Lord, as we walk through this week, help us to, to see what Jesus walked through as well as to see the cross for what it is, that our sins have been put there to death with him and all the wrath of God was poured out on him so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Lord, help us praise next week in the resurrection that Jesus has ultimately defeated sin and death on our behalf. Thank you for this, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start in verse 1, and we'll see what Solomon has to say to us. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. What Solomon's saying here is that a name and a reputation, the legacy of a good man or a wise man is better than ointment or what we see in ointment in wealth. Growing up, one of the things my dad used to say to me when I would leave the house is, remember who you are and remember whose you are. It was a reminder for me that I, in my life, represented the legacy of my family and not only represented the le legacy of my family, but also the legacy of the name that I would be preparing for. But it was also a reminder of who I was in Christ and the image that I bore as a son of God. 
Remember who you are and whose you are. Now, of course, I didn't always live by these rules. Uh, my dad could probably attest to you in the chat how I didn't always follow that, but it was a reminder and a foundation for me to remember whose name I lived under. Not only the Gonzalez name, but the name of Christ, the legacy that had been prepared. And Solomon here tells us that a good name, a good reputation, a good legacy is better than having wealth. All the oil, all the perfume was no better than having a good name. That was the most important thing. And what I want to tell you guys this morning is what, whatever you can do as parents, even before having children, whatever you do, the best thing you can do to prepare a legacy is going to be better than creating wealth. It's going to be better than creating wealth for your children and your grandchildren. It is a good thing when somebody comes up to your child and says, are you the son of Dwayne? Are you the child of Jordan? Are you the daughter of so-and-so? And when your children say, yes, yes I am, that person then can bless your children and in turn bless you with a story about your faithfulness to Christ, your integrity, your unselfishness, whatever it may be that your legacy leaves, they can be blessed by your name. And this, one, this is what Solomon says, legacy is better than wealth. This understanding of legacy and the name that you build means something. What it means is that what you do affects your children, your grandchildren. The here and now is something to live for, but it's also something that is preparing your generations to come. This is why we talk about legacy when we do family dedication. We don't just come up and dedicate a child, but we talk about dedicating the family to the church and the church dedicating their lives to the family in order to create this foundation for a Christ-like walk for this family and the legacy that they prepare for their children and their grandchildren. This is what Solomon means when he says a good name is better than wealth. But he also says a very interesting phrase at the latter half of this verse, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now yes, this is a strange phrase, but when we think about it in the context of the first six chapters that we've looked at, Solomon has said that it, life and work and toil, pleasure, all of it is meaningless. All of it is vanity. All of it is like a smokestack that you are trying to grasp and it leaves your hands as soon as you put your hand to it. And so what he says here is that the day of death is better than life because when you die, you leave the vanity and the meaningless behind. But what I want to say to take this further for us as believers is that there is hope in this verse. The day of death is a day of hope because it brings fulfillment. You see, the day of birth brings a lot of joy, right? We've got families that are about to have children. We've got an understanding that in these children's lives, there is potential that is going to come. One of these kids could be a pastor. One of these kids could be a theologian, an artist, 
uh, a doctor. I know that this, the, the Sollers kids are going to be jacked, right? I mean, you just look at Alex. It's, it's just the way their kid's going to come out. Um, but there's potential for these children, right? And this is what we see in the life of a child, is that there is a life in which they are going to live, but they're going to come under the hardships. They're going to come under the pain. They're going to come under the fall that rules us all. But in death, there is fulfillment. In death, all the satisfaction that we had talked about in chapter six is found. All the pain and the trials and the, the sin that holds us is now gone. Now let me be careful here because I'm, I'm not celebrating death itself. I'm not celebrating death because it is a, an affront to God and it is the wages of our sin. But what I'm doing is I am celebrating what comes after death. As Paul says in Philippians 1, to live is for Christ, to die is to gain. And so what I'm celebrating is the gain. I'm celebrating that we gain freedom we gain those chains that we sang about being released fully and completely as we are in glory with the Lord. And this is why believers' funerals, even though they are full of sadness and mourning, they can also be full of joy. They can also be full of laughter. They can also be full of praise because we know that that brother and that sister is now home with the Lord and they are in a far better place than we are. The ancient Romans used to think that Christian funeral practices were obscene and, of, and offensive because they celebrated someone's death because they passed on into glory. This is why Solomon says that the day of death is better than the day of birth. And for the believer, we can say yes and amen because fulfillment has come. All of our longings all of the desires of our hearts have been now fulfilled in glory. And this is the heart of a wise man. As Solomon will continue to show us, when we think about death, this is where the wise live. Look at what he says in verse two through four about this idea. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon continues on this theme about the day of death being better than birth by pointing us to the house of mourning, by pointing us to a funeral. And in this house of mourning, the wise see the questions of life, the issues that come about answered in the house of mourning. What an odd piece of wisdom that Solomon gives us. He says that it's better to mourn. He says it's better to be sorrowful. He says it's better to go to the house of mourning. What he is saying here is that the wise take death to heart that the wise understand that sorrow and affliction and pain and death, because they're a part of this life, because they're under the sun, they have a purpose. 
He has repeated this over and over and over to us, that death comes to all, the wise and the fool. But he says it's only the wise man that take death seriously. It's only the wise man that lives in the house of mourning. So I want to ask the question, what does the wise man gain in living in this house of mourning? Well, they gain two things. The first is perspective. Whether it's a funeral, whether it's a pandemic like we're walking through right now, or just visiting a graveyard, the wise man understands more deeply the ultimate result of the fall. The wise man gives proper consideration to the brevity of life. He is reminded that how we live matters. He learns the value of comfort and also how to comfort others. The wise man knows that every funeral anticipates his own and it reminds him that there is still time to change, there's still time to examine his life, there's time to confess his sin, there's time to forgive, and there's time to plan ahead. And it's only in death that the wise take these lessons of the funeral to heart and gain perspective on this life. The other thing that the wise man gains is the ability to teach. Because sorrow teaches them. And I want you to see this here. In sorrow, two things can happen, and the wise man learns from it. He learns that lessons can be had, and he learns that work can be done. Sorrow teaches the wise man the lessons that no other part of life can teach him. Charles Spurgeon says, I am afraid that all the grace that I have got in my comfortable and easy and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I have received from my sorrows and pains and grief is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. The wise man understands that sorrow teaches them something. But it also prepares the heart for the deep beauty of the gospel. The gospel of Christ is for the brokenhearted. Jesus said that he didn't come to heal those who were healthy, but he came to heal the sick and the lost. And who appreciates pardon more than the sorrowing, repentant man? Who values the doctrine of paternal providence but the tired and weary? Who values the doctrine of resurrection than the bereaved and dying? Jesus even tells us, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Sorrow makes the wise man teachable because he learns, but it also allows him to become a teacher. It helps them understand the things of this life in order to comfort others. Hear what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. The wise man is taught in order that he can teach and comfort others. Typically, the heart 
or life of a person who has walked through sorrow is more sympathetic, is more empathetic to those who are walking through the house of mourning. The heart of the wise man is very countercultural to the way we live now. Billy Joel once sang this, I would rather laugh with sinners than cry with saints. And sadly, this is the foolishness that Solomon is talking about here in these verses. The wise man understands going to the house of mourning helps us see life with a different perspective. But he says the fool lives to sing and laugh. The next thing that we see Solomon give us is the humbleness of the wise man. Let's look at verse 5. He says, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. In verse 5, Solomon compares the response of a fool when rebuked to thorns being thrown on a fire. Now, in Eastern times, uh, these thorns would be nettles. And as they were thrown on the fire, they would sprout up very quickly, but they wouldn't bring any heat, and they would be very, very loud cracks. Like these thorns, Solomon says, the laughter and the song of fools is what is the response when they receive rebuke. It is empty. But the wise man takes rebuke and sees that it serves a greater purpose in their life than the short thrill of the laughter of fools. Let me ask you this this morning. How do you respond to rebuke? How do you take criticism in your life? Are you like the wise man or, and you take it to heart? Or are you like the fool who laughs and shrugs it off? Do you have wise counsel or friends in your life who will rebuke you? You don't just have a yes man or a yes woman in your life that are never going to come against anything that you do. Are you in a community of believers where you can be vulnerable and open up your life to be able to even receive rebuke from others? I want to just give a, a, a quick lesson of wisdom that I've seen. Um, husbands and wives, you need more than each other. Single people, I, I mean, I can speak for us, or I will speak for us because I'm here and you can't stop me. Um, we need people to but what I've noticed is that married people can often just come to each other as their source of criticism and rebuke. But the Bible tells us that you need more. The Bible tells us that you need the entire body of Christ because marriage isn't the body of Christ. It's a part of it, but it's not the specific body of Christ that God calls you to to be in community in the church. And the humility of the wise man leads them to take the rebuke as a mercy from God. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. I think everybody would be an enemy right now if you're trying to kiss someone, but that's beside the point. But then Solomon goes on to write this. Not only in humility, but there is patience that the wise man shows in his character. Look at verse 7. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Solomon here shows us the reality of a fallen world. He brings this truth that in persecution and oppression, even the faithful become mad and act like fools. They take bribes, they become corrupt. He says bribery does to the upright what oppression can do to the wise in heart. And this can become disheartening for us whenever we see that there is public humiliation of a wise counselor or the corruption of an honest witness, we can lose heart, can't we? Because we see that injustice continues to prevail under the sun and that life is so complicated. But Solomon goes to show us in verse 8 that the wise know that the end of a matter is better than its beginning and that patience is better than pride. Here's where the patience and humility of a wise man come together and these two attributes help them understand that this outcome, that the end of an outcome is better than its beginning. Isn't this the gospel truth that we see? Isn't this a hope that we hold on to, that we see in Romans 8? That God is working things out for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose? Isn't this the promise that we have in Revelation that the end is going to be better than the beginning or now? Yet it's without these two truths that the fool will never see what time can do to a situation. And verse 9 shows us that with patience the wise are not controlled by anger. Solomon even goes to show us that anger lodges itself deep down. It buries itself deep until there's deep bitterness and resentment in the fool's heart. Augustine goes on to say that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And I can't tell you how many times I, I have been in a conversation where people I truly have forgiven get brought up and I'll say something where I will have to run to the Lord and say, no, Lord, I've, I've forgiven them. I promise I've forgiven them. Because even in my own life and the sin that affects me, there's still anger that is buried deep down. And it's only by the gospel that this bitterness and resentment can be up rooted. The wise aren't controlled by their anger. I heard a pastor this week talking about he'll, how he will sometimes drive on the interstate with his children in the back, and uh, he'll get a little bit of road rage, which I know no, none of us um, have any problem with that, right? But one time, his daughter was in the back seat, and she said, Daddy, why, why are you so upset? Why are you so angry? Calm down. Slow down. Just breathe. He said that that was a reminder that he was acting like the fool and letting the anger get the best of him. This is what the fool is controlled by, is anger and impatience. Here in Solomon, here in verse 9, Solomon links not only the impatience and the anger of the fool to how he acts, but he also links what he said early on in verse 4, where he says the fool pursues pleasure. In verse 5, the fool lacks wisdom. In verse 8, the laughter that the fool has is momentary. 
And as he leads into verse 10, he shows us that it is the fool who in his anger and in his impatience lacks wisdom. And that lack of wisdom leads him to an irrational, nostalgic view of the old days. Verse 10, Solomon is saying that it is not wise to have an ignorance of the good old days. He goes on to say that the wise don't ask why those days were better, but they see them for what they were, a part of life. I do think it's kind of ironic that I'm preaching this verse, and if you were here last week, Dwayne actually gave a story about him and his friends talking about the good old days. Oh, man, God's ironic, God's ironic providence is, is shining throughout this, this Sunday. Now, I will say that Dwayne is not a fool. He is not characterized by living in the good old days. So, but it is kind of funny that this got brought up, and last week's sermon had that point. But this is what Solomon says about the fool is that they live in the good old days, thinking that yesterday or yesteryear was better than here and now. A pastor once said, the good old days are the combination of bad memories and good imagination. And this is how the fool lives, in bad memories and good imaginations, and their life looks like a bunch of Uncle Rico's saying that they can throw a pigskin a quarter mile. But it's with patience and humility that the wise man trusts in the sovereign plan of God. He understands that it is God's sovereign plan that is leading him in the here and now and that the future brings better days. Ultimately, when Christ returns, the greatest day that we'll see. Solomon also shows us in verses 11 and 12, the wise man preserves wisdom like wealth. Look what he says here. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon shows us the necessity of protecting wisdom, which is another callback to chapter two when he gave us the exhortation that wisdom is better than folly as he has studied them both. Those who possess both wisdom and inheritance, Solomon says, experience good. But Solomon is not saying here that inheritance and wealth are bad. What he's saying is that they both bring good in the life of a wise man under the sun. The Bible, in fact, never condemns having wealth or inheritance. Proverbs 13 tells us that a good and righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. The father and the prodigal son is never condemned for leaving an inheritance even to his foolish son who goes and blows it. What Solomon is implying here in verses 11 and 12 is that the wise don't waste their inheritance. But he's also saying, more importantly, the wise treat and protect wisdom better than wealth. And they have greater care for wisdom than their inheritance. It goes back to verse one, right? A name is better than oil. The reputation and legacy of your wisdom is better than riches. And so Solomon repeats this remark of how the wise man lives. And finally, we see the foundation for the wise man's character. Verses 13 and 14 say, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. What a timely verse for what we are walking through right now. In adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. Here is the foundation for the wise man's character, why he can be patient, why he can be humble, why he understands that legacy is more important than wealth, because he trusts in the sovereign control and plan of God. Solomon shows us that the wise trust and know that life is not just some blind faith or random choice, but rather that God is over all and in control of all, and he rests in this truth. Solomon shows us that the wise profit from both pleasure and adversity. In the day of pleasure, the wise rejoice. In the day of pleasure, they store up memories and moments and times in which they are having joy. They are eating and drinking and enjoying fellowship with one another and praising God for the good gifts that he has given them. But in adversity, the wise man considers that God has also given him this. They consider that God has a comprehensive and good plan for their lives, even though they might not see it in front of them. They understand that suffering and adversity is not always a sign of God's disfavor. In fact, they understand that adversity is often better than prosperity. John Bunyan would say comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world so much as adversity has. So the answer to the question in verse 12 of chapter 6 that Solomon asks, what is, a good, what is good for a man while he lives, is answered here in verses 13 and 14. To, to trust the sovereign plan of God all the days of our lives. The wise man looks and understands that God is in control and that even though we cannot understand all that he does, we can trust in his goodness. This is the foundation for the wise. It allows him to preserve wisdom over wealth because he knows that wisdom is more precious than rubies. This is where patience and humility come because God is in control of all things and has determined seasons to all things and has promised to work all things out for the good of those who love him. Here, the wise can live in the house of mourning because they know that there will be comfort in that mourning. And there, the wise can build their legacy from this foundation and leave the legacy of faithfulness to the Lord to their children and their children's children. So I want to close with this. How do we, this side of the cross, live like the wise man? We go to verse 13 and 14. We rest in the sovereignty of God's goodness and his plan for his children. We look to Christ, who Paul says is the power and wisdom of God. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 1 where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debtor, debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know who God was, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. 
For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We look to Christ to rest in God's sovereignty, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And it is in Christ, our union with him, that we have a firm foundation to trust that God has a plan and he is for us, his children. Paul goes to say in Romans 8, we know that those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, though that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? What then shall we say to adversity and pain and suffering and trials and the coronavirus and fear? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him give us all things? In the midst of adversity, trust in this truth. Run to the sovereignty of God. Because it is in adversity that we will see that God is growing us in such a way that prosperity would never do. And I want to draw you back to this reality, brothers and sisters, that no matter how bad it gets, God is not shocked. God is on his throne, and he is in control of it all. Charles Spurgeon would say, he who counts the stars and calls them by their names is in no danger of forgetting his own children. What a beautiful truth. This is our reality in any and every circumstance. So let us hold fast. We can mourn and we can lament in this time because we see that sin still has a deep hold on this world. But let that lamenting and mourning lead to a deep abiding trust in the goodness of God who has promised us this. As Duane read this morning, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil for God is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. So let us rest our heads on this truth this morning, the pillow of God's sovereignty, and trust that he is the great I am. The same today, yesterday, today, and forever. And he will not lead his people, but has promised to draw near to them in their time of need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for your great mercy that you have given us in Christ. We thank you that we can trust and rest in your good and sovereign plan even when adversity strikes. Lord, we ask you to reveal more of who you are in this time. Help us to live like the wise man who goes to the house of mourning and gains perspective on life for himself as well as to teach others. Lord, we ask for more of your grace. We praise you for your beautiful and wonderful name. Amen. This morning I wanted to close with a song that's it's really just...
Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at